Hello, and welcome to Equity Matters, a free podcast that allows for us to explore what equity looks like through personal storytelling. My name is Dr. Miranda Ward, and I am your host. This brief 20-minute podcast will start with the title and overview of today's show, move into the question of the day before I share today's story, and end with your call to act. Now, before we get started with today's episode, I want to share that all of the views expressed today are my own and do not represent the George Washington University. And for those of you who have tuned in from SoundCloud, just so you know, this podcast is also available for download on iTunes. I welcome any reviews you have about today's story or any suggestions you can offer for new or more topics. With that, welcome to the show, and thanks for tuning in. You're listening to episode two, Growing Up Girl. In this episode, I'll share a story and reflections after hosting a gender workshop for girls that had me connect our discussion beyond just the intersection of our identities, but to the systems that give them meaning. As you tune in, I invite you to consider the question of the day. Actually, you know what? I'm going to cheat a little bit and give you a two-part question. But you got this. I trust you're up for the challenge. So first, would you say that anything that intentionally causes injury is considered violent? And connected to that, why would it be helpful to think of deliberate sources of injury beyond the physical or emotional? Ready? Here we go. About two summers ago, I designed and hosted a workshop that I called Growing Up Girl at this summer camp for school-age girls here in DC. Through some discussion-based activities, we explored how gender is learned and how its meanings change as we do. In particular, I worked with the girls to create a space so that those as young as eight felt comfortable exploring their gender in ways that they had not previously considered. Now, this entry point was a bit easier with the high school girls because they had more experiences to draw on. They knew of transgender students at their schools and personally experimented with their own sexualities. So this older group is the group that I posted images of gender expressions within popular culture throughout the room. This included Jaden Smith wearing a prom dress, a black girl wearing an afro, Caitlyn Jenner posing for Vanity Fair, amongst others. And I invited them to walk around, view all of the images in a gallery walk of sorts, and then comment in writing. As a black woman, I will admit, I was intrinsically drawn to what the few black girls in the room had to say. I asked the group to read the anonymous comments that their peers had written for each picture. So when we got to the image of the black girl wearing her natural hair and afro, the groups read the words underneath. It included the big hair, don't care, to beautiful, and then other words like nappy, ghetto. Upon hearing this, one of the black girls who was very vocal in the workshop up until this point became visibly upset and immediately withdrew from what was brewing into a rich discussion. Since she had led our previous discussions, I was keenly aware of her silence. So I invited her to share her thoughts. She noted how hurt she was to learn that the white girls in the group would write this, given that she wears her natural hair like this. She drew parallels to how she's mistreated at school based on her looks, especially with how she felt black boys were more attracted to black girls with the quote unquote good hair. 
I reminded the group that we agreed to create a safe space to openly share our thoughts on gender. In doing this, I validated her story as real for her. In that same vein, I reiterated how this was an anonymous post, so warned that we could not presume to know who made the comment, nor could we assume their intentions behind it. Let me pause here to suggest that today's critical educators must be just as open to working through the meanings of the words we choose. And in that classroom, I observed how it was impossible to think about our gender outside of our other identities. I mean, this very conversation was an indication of that struggle. And while this workshop ended with the camp counselors coming in, discussing empathy and appreciation of difference, I walked away with my own couple of key observations. To my first observation, consistently across both groups, the girls characterized their gendered experience at the backdrop of the boys and men in their lives. To be honest, I wasn't surprised. To their credit, we are socialized to think about gender in limiting binary ways. Though gender is best understood on a spectrum, it's challenging for some to unlearn what they're taught from birth. But it was my second observation that's at the center of today's episode. So returning to the image of the black girl with her natural hair, one might interpret the comment, big hair don't care, as admittedly wearing unkept, unruly hair because literally one don't care. But I'd argue that this phrase more appropriately captures a sense of pride for natural beauty and ownership of one's right to express themselves in an organic way. This phrase is actually a popular line lifted from a hip hop song that many people use to express confidence. While they do care about their look, they don't care to offer explanations for it. Yes, they unapologetically wear an afro, regardless of the judgmental gaze of the straight-haired people around them. This phrase suggests that there is no room, no care, no beep for respectability politics. Hopefully you filled in that beep with your most fitting expletive. But anyways, it was clear that the black girl who wore natural hair in my workshop indeed did care what others thought of her big hair. I mean, being connected to and accepted by others is what makes us human. The assault on her humanness is essentially what she was describing. She was hurt by the rejection of her peers both within and outside of her racial and gendered identities. While she speculated that it was one of the white girls who was describing the pictured Afro as nappy and ghetto, her own anecdotes indicated that some of the black boys and girls in her life had also internalized those very sentiments. I'm suggesting that this instance serves as just one of several examples about how black girl bodies and psyche are monitored, dehumanized, and just flat out reminiscent of structural violence. So, are you wondering how I made that leap between hair and violence? Well, I'll tell you. First of all, it's not just about hair. It's the insidious belief of inferiority that inhabits one's mind and sense of self. When inferiority is internalized, basic human dignities and rights are violated, denied even. But structural violence goes unnoticed, unchallenged, and in many cases, like I said, internalized by black girls. But I'll come back to this in a moment. Structural violence, as authored by Paul Farmer in 1996, focuses on how poor people suffer and have been historically silenced while suffering. Well, to extend that, 
I suggest that black girl suffering is even more pronounced that she's poor, differently abled, a sexual minority, or basically occupies any other marginalized identity. This daunting form of violence is enduring, intangible, ubiquitous. In other words, it's systemic, taking place at so many levels in so many spaces. It goes without saying that the spaces where black girls actually experience structural violence are varied and exist within overlapping yet distinct spheres across their lives, from family and neighborhood to social life. There are so many social theories that are used to explore the function of each of these spheres, but let's just say that the personal and family spheres receive disproportionate amounts of attention. I mean, they are important, but rather than identify the social conditions that incubate such structural violence, it's just easier to isolate the roles of personal decisions and predispositions to the violence that black girls experience. And since these personal and family experiences are detached from the social fabric that breeds them, black girls become the accessible targets for public critique and sanctioning. You want examples? <laughs> Trust, I have plenty. But for the purposes of time, let me roll out about three prime examples. For the first example, let's take it to the schoolhouse. There's been increased media attention to how secondary schools justify their decorum-based, no big hair, red, don't come to school as a black girl, school policies as preventing distractions and bullying. Some schools have since rescinded their policies given all the public outcries, while others have threatened expulsions for noncompliance. Oh, and we can't overlook the inequitable treatment of black girls in schools. I remember the heated national debate that was sparked when video footage of a South Carolina resource officer body slammed a young black girl, desk and all, in the classroom, right in front of her black teacher and her peers. This clearly made national headlines, but more, it conjured up what people thought about the role and function of zero tolerance policies. On the one hand, supporters of zero tolerance school policies question what the girl must have done to provoke this kind of response from an officer. And then on the other, critics of zero tolerance policies, in this case, police brutality, offered connections to a prison culture of monitoring and physical force that preys on black youth. Unsure of where you stand? Well, this is why I invite my students to read Push Out, The Criminalization of Black Girls in Schools. In it, Dr. Monique Morris captures the disproportionate rates of school suspensions and other micro and macro aggressions against black girls. And now, hot off the press, in June of 2017, a research report was released by Georgetown Law's Center on Poverty and Inequality about the perception of some adults that black girls are less innocent and more adult-like when compared to their white peers. In other words, researchers and scholars have coined this finding as the adultification of black girls that leads to biases in how they're treated and disciplined. But don't take my word for it. Pull up the report for yourself. It's called Girlhood Interrupted, the Erasure of Black Girls' Childhood. In it, you'll read that this bias hypersexualizes black girls and subjects them to a greater number of dress code violations. The data also reveals that adults felt that black girls needed less nurturing, less protection, less support than white girls. Are you serious? That's what I said when I read this too. 
But unfortunately, this explains why black girls are nearly three times more likely than white girls to be referred to the juvenile justice system. The school to prison pipeline is operating just as it was designed. There, I said it. These dress code and suspension policies alone control how black girls exude their blackness, if at all. When black girls don't make claims over their own bodies and identities, a cognitive dissonance sets in that flattens the complexity of their experiences and in turn makes them more consumable to a viewing public. This is structural violence against black girls coded as school policy, but it doesn't stop there. It creeps up in your Twitter feed. This explains why a young black woman named Zola went viral and trended as hashtag Zola story on Twitter. Do y'all remember this? This brings me to the next example. Back in 2015, Zola's personally narrated story over the course of several hundred tweets was revered as this epic tale of sex work, exotic dancing, sexual assault, human drug trafficking, and murder. It was even picked up by CNN. The Twitter comments expressing concern for her sanity, safety, well-being, paled in comparison to the countless tweets that the story read as a movie so vividly wild and exciting. While some people felt like the story was way too insane to be true, others glorified the aspects of her life as reflecting their own daily struggles with poverty, addiction, and unhealthy relationships. To be clear, I am not debating the validity of this black woman's life. Instead, I'm suggesting we pay attention to the stigma attached to her identities, the gendered and sexual inequities that fueled her feelings of despair and hopelessness in the first place that resulted in her growing dependence on capital gains at the perceivable loss of personal power. You see, Zola was not the only one who witnessed the murder. I feel like her spirit was assassinated long ago. And although the structural massacre of black girls' spirits is as deliberate as it is persistent, its subtle presence remains undeniably distorted. By this I mean that the emotional or psychological pain and trauma that some black girls experience is often credited to dysfunctional interpersonal relationships. This is that personal and family sphere I was talking about earlier. What results are public health interventions and social services designed to remedy their personal decisions or attempt to stabilize their family structure. Sure, I'm a public health practitioner, so I recognize the need for these kind of efforts, but I can also call a spade a spade. We miss the mark when we only treat, prevent, or correct what's determined to be a deficit intrinsic to black girls instead of the messy, overarching, historically situated systems of oppression. This reminds me of one of the social media musings from a colleague of mine, Janae Watts, where she asks, why don't we design interventions to prevent people in power from taking, abusing, neglecting, harming, and manipulating? We already know why. The system is kept afloat by people who benefit from social hierarchies. Go ahead. Raise your hand if you think anybody is going to volunteer to give up their unearned privilege. Paul Farmer said it. The suffering of the most marginalized is silenced by those in power. Like Zola, the suffering of black girls is not only muted, it's camouflaged. So what black girls think about, feel, due to their hair, skin, bodies, are not always their own thoughts, feelings, and actions. As they learn the meanings of blackness as girls, their performances of themselves reflect back patriarchal, 
neoliberal and colonial discourses that they're situated in. Let me tell you, I love Bell Hooks because she names these systems of oppression for what they are. Given our gender discussion, it's only fitting that I note how she aptly describes patriarchy for how it interacts with imperialism, white supremacy, and capitalism. The codependence of these systems make patriarchy feel impenetrable and unescapable. Imperialist, white supremacist, and capitalist patriarchy is so ingrained in the quote-unquote way things are that black girls may not even name, question, or challenge it. Of course, there are black girls who resist the status quo, who make up and reclaim new and more identities for themselves. And still, their seemingly alternative and resistant performances of self exist in response to the same oppressive discourse, regardless of the meanings they give to their lives. Put it like this, discourse is like a puppet master, limiting the movement of its puppet. There's only so much range of motion that a puppet is allowed given the strings keeping it confined. Cutting those strings, or in this case, appending that discourse is the only way to get free and change the game. Black girl resilience has always been the game changer. In fact, a black woman owned business first tweeted that black girls are magic, promoting t-shirts that told it the same message. This quickly translated into this widely used hashtag. Ava DuVernay's Barbie doll sold out in minutes. Black Girl Magic. Blue Ivy's natural hair cameo appearance in Beyonce's Formation music video. Black Girl Magic. Any appearance by First Lady Michelle Obama. Black Girl Magic. Yet, it wasn't until Essence Magazine actually used the phrase Black Girl Magic on their 2016 Black History Month special edition did the hashtag Black Girl Magic become hotly debated for the message it sends to black girls and beyond. Now to back up a bit, the debate was actually made public by an Elle magazine op-ed entitled, Here's My Problem with Black Girl Magic. In it, the author focused on the quote-unquote strong black woman profile that black girls are weighed against, which the author claimed is not only unfair, but detrimental to their development. Oh my God, if I tell you, that piece received so much backlash. How dare she come for Black Girl Magic? They basically ripped to shreds all of her points by recentering attention to the role of the hashtag, which was, you know, to unite Black girls and women to publicly name the beauty and boldness of their Blackness. Its purpose was to uplift Black girls and women in public spaces that often disavowed them. It should go without saying that I am here for black girls. Black girls rock. Black is beautiful and, not but, and, like the op-ed rightly points out, the black girl magic movement has some blind spots. It does. It's real. Deal with it. This is the final example of structural violence. So yes, it's important for black girls to witness the achievements of black women. It's equally important that the celebration of those achievements happen in public spaces. The hashtag users describe their use as a celebration of blackness and greatness across generations. In its most literal sense, maybe. Symbolically though, black girls and women are pursuing success, power, prestige, and happiness within the confounds of whiteness. It is when black girls or women enter spaces previously unoccupied by them, or should I say, attain the coveted status of the norm, 
that the celebratory hashtags applied. This explains why Zola's online story would never bear the Black Girl Magic moniker, because it doesn't counter mainstream profiles of what it means to be a black girl. So it's looking like the movement that was designed to recognize and praise black girls and women actually has limits to the dopeness and magicness. Those limits looking awfully familiar if you ask me. We clearly see which black girls remain invisible and uncelebrated. Yep, the pregnant teen mom, the homeless runaway, the Cardi B's of the hood. Oh wait, look, let me just go ahead and do a shameless plug for TheRoot.com who did a think piece on that. But ultimately what I'm suggesting is that there was another form of injury. Deliberately reducing the fullness of black girlhood is violent. This is answering that question of the day. Dare I say even more injurious because it's like an inside job, but remains overlooked as damaging because it's embedded in the structure of our minds, our institutions, the dominant culture, which we clearly know is rooted in patriarchy, racism, heteronormativity, among other oppressive systems. So the hashtag intends to affirm the potential pride and power of black girls, but what it actually ends up doing is remaining complicit with and perpetuating the very structures that control their narrative, making the exercise necessary in the first place. So let me go ahead and wrap this up with a nice little bow, connecting those dots between structural violence against black girls and equity. So you have the stereotypes and biases that subject black girls to zero tolerance policies, AKA the school to prison pipeline, and that's unfair point blank period. Then there's W.E.B. Du Bois' century-old concept of double consciousness that sets in when black girls start to think of themselves and the ways others view them. Black girls are loud, black girls are ratchet, black girls are dysfunctional, basically unacceptable in their naturally occurring state. After a while, they subconsciously accept these as truth and attempt to dissociate themselves from the labels by projecting it onto other black girls, unknowingly hurting themselves in the process. The fragments of who black girls are remains incomplete, competing and conflicting as they attempt to locate themselves in the world, all while craving validation from those puppet masters. Audre Lorde said it best when she declared that the master's tools, or should I say hashtags, will never dismantle the master's house. Black girls need and have their own tools. They carry in themselves an embodied knowledge, one they've relied on for ages to survive and thrive as only black girls can. Speaking of which, by the time you hear this, I would have already participated in the September 30th March for Black Women here in DC against the continued threats to state-sanctioned violence, deportation, economic injustice, and the right to health and healthcare. I will be right there to build upon this collective power and capitalize on the healing spaces attached to the movement. Now I will say that future opportunities to design and host a growing up black and girl workshop will have me highlight how black girls must learn to see and value themselves through their own volition to reclaim their bodies, power, and space. How black girls talk about and to themselves is important. I'm a black woman who still listens to the black girl inside me. Sometimes she's still, 
Other times she's sashaying, but nonetheless strong as hell. I rely on her to corral that source of strength and ingenuity bellowing at my core, our cores. When I tell you there is room on and offline for Zola's, the South Carolina student, and First Lady Michelle Obama's to coexist. But now, dun, 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 herein lies your call to act. I invite you to think about the last time you stood in solidarity with black girls, black women, to fight injustice. I mean, there's no time like the present. And you don't have to be out on the front lines of a march or a rally to do it. You can tweet or write your elected official about the policies they support that deny the health and safety of all black women. That's young and seasoned. That's cis and trans. That's US and global citizens. It is essential to name the acts of violence that double as threats to dignity, wholeness, and existence of black girls as structural in nature. Well, that's the end of episode two. And my bad, y'all. We want to tab it over 20 minutes, but it's hard to squeeze in everything I want to say about black girls, resilience, equity. But thanks for tuning in. Tell your BFF and your roommate to check out the podcast. Until next time, let's commit to practicing humanity each and every day. After all, equity matters. Shh.